Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hertel Radio, and I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us on this Tuesday, December the 14th. We're thrilled that you're with us. Appreciate you taking the time as we spend a little bit of time trying to turn down the news cycle noise a little bit on some of the information we really need to get to. We're going to talk a lot of media on the program today. Uh, James Chernowski from Young Voices is going to join us. We're going to talk about internet regulation, things like 230, things like Facebook, things like video games, uh, and why they're so important. Uh, Also going to talk a little bit about how media headlines get distorted a little bit later on in the program. But first, we want to start and kind of set up that discussion with James in this way, because the way media is being portrayed to us and the way regulation is being spoken to speaks to how media and news media in particular is changing in America and how we need to understand that because it speaks to who wants to control it, who wants to control narratives, who wants power, who wants freedom, who doesn't want freedom. These are important issues, so let's just jump right into them. Um, kind of the genesis of this entire program and everything we do on Herd Tell and things I try to do in my writing and my advocacy and my media is that there's just so much noise and it's based off reactions and it's hard for folks to get past the noise and get to the things that really, really matter. That's why we talk about turning down the news cycle noise. Well, part of the problem here is I don't think people fully understand sometimes how much news media is changing. The network news uh, model is in a great state of flux right now. We know their ratings are going down. It's been well covered. Uh, We see things going on like at CNN that we've talked about with the Cuomo situation and other things where You just have some rot level corruption on top of everything else because the media model and the money involved because you have somebody with a multi-million dollar contract and the model is getting a little tight and it's hard to just cut people loose like that. So you end up tolerating things you shouldn't tolerate. Let's just be adults and call it what it is. So what do we do with this? Well, I don't like to just rail against the media because number one, as we've talked about before, that's way too big a term. News media in America is a very specific business model. That business model has been working pretty well in the cable era. So since cable network news, starting with CNN and others followed, the idea was you have a news network, and just like all other TV networks, 
they got their ratings and then they take their ratings and they charge advertisers a certain amount of money based off those ratings. It's a good business model. It's worked for years and years, but now it's changing a little bit. Reading from the wrap here, the numbers way back in 2019, already back then, over 70% of people had some kind of a streaming service. By 2021, it's estimated it'll be over 80-some percent. Now, not everybody got rid of their cable. A lot of people have both of some sort or another, but it has changed the model. And one of the things that's really changing the model that folks don't talk about, but something I've noticed in my own children, and I've, I've seen it in other places, is uh, advertising the way that it used to be done on TV is not only not effective now, it's downright offensive. People hate commercials. They don't want their entertainment interrupted by commercials. Streaming has changed the mindset where people do not want commercials. And that's one of the big things that's driving them to streaming, not just the content, but did you get uninterrupted content on demand? I noticed this in my own children as they were growing up in a streaming world, because when we try to watch something on regular TV, commercials were not just a nuisance. They got viscerally angry about it. They don't like it. They're like, why is this interrupting what I'm doing? Well, the two places where those still work is news media and sports. That's why you see these massive media contracts with sports, because live sports, you can still do commercials and there's nothing you can do about it because you can't get around it because it's live. Uh, News media has the same thing, especially when you have breaking news stories. But that model's changing. The model is changing and just take our little program, for example. We're on iTunes and Spotify. We're on YouTube. You can watch it. Uh, we've partnered with the Big Talker online, and they're streaming it on their platforms. It's on their app. It's on their Listen Live tab. It's on their Facebook page. We are what would be considered, although on a very small scale, multi-platformed media. We're getting it out in different ways. Well, the network news has figured this out. They're, they're expanding into things like YouTube and other areas. But here's why. We take, and I'm getting this from HypeAuditor.com. If you take the listing of most viewed news and political YouTube channels in the United States, you start understanding the situation that network news is in. Vox, Vox Vox.com, the publication company, the number three ranked right now in the world, averages 129,000 views. Okay, that's more than Fox News and CNN on YouTube combined and doubled. PBS NewsHour, you wouldn't think PBS being super high tech, right? But PBS's frontline flagship program gets more views than some popular personalities like Brian Tyler Cohen, Ben Shapiro. They get more than Fox News. They get more than CNN. They get more than CNBC. Now, that would kind of think of PBS being maybe stodgy or an older audience, but they're doing great on YouTube on demand video. And then you have individual people that are doing extremely well. well-known pundit and lawyer Glenn Kirshner does more views than CNN it does itself. We already mentioned Ben Shapiro, who's in the top 25 of all YouTube channels right now. And then there's some really unsavory people that do very, very well, like Paul Joseph Watson, popularly known as Prison Planet, excuse me, Prison Planet. Uh, I don't really want to promote him, but I have to mention him because he's number 12 ranked YouTube channel and he spews absolute garbage and nonsense, but he's super popular on YouTube. There are others. You could go down this list and you'll see names you recognize, like the BBC, like CNN, like CNBC. And something else that should broaden your perspective on how YouTube news is going. uh, Five of the top 10 YouTube news and political channels are in foreign languages, mostly Chinese and Mandarin. 
there's a massive title change going on right now in how people get their information. How we take all this information in goes to the heart of how we see our world, how we perceive our world. It's very important to understand that something is changing here. Let me give you another example that you may not have heard of. Uh, have you ever heard of or heard tell of Twitch? Twitch was started as a way for video gamers to stream themselves playing video games and comment and have followers. It's a monetized platform. They can make, there's actually professional gamers. They make a lot of their income from Twitch people watching video games. Now that sounds kind of silly until I watch my own kids. They like to watch people play video games. When I was a kid, if you were watching somebody play a video game, that usually started a fight because it means you weren't getting a turn, but it's a massive business model. It's a billions of dollars business model. E-gaming is huge. But something you might want to keep in mind is just how fast this stuff changes. Twitch is now becoming very, very popular for political commentary. It's a lot of more left-leaning and progressive commentary now. But one of the reasons I partner with things like Young Voices, they keep me young and explain this stuff to me like I'm five years old because I don't understand it. Um, a lot of liberty-loving and freedom-loving uh, people from the right and the libertarian movement are moving into streaming. They're streaming on YouTube and they're streaming on Twitch. You, you wonder, and Twitch has anywhere between three and five million people watching it at any given time. That's a huge audience. It's a very young audience. It's a very raw audience. And they're very culturally different because they're endued into that gaming world. They view the world differently. They communicate differently. It's almost like its own language. And that is now the cutting edge of what is going to be coming in culture and politics. So when we're complaining about the news media or the mainstream news media or legacy media or whatever you want to call it, we need to understand that what we're seeing right now is not the same as it will be in 10 or 15 years. Remember, we're only about 25 years into the internet age. That's not a really long time when it comes to technology, but when it comes to cutting edge technology, that's Jurassic almost. Think about it this way, if you will. The MTV generation is getting ready to retire. The Twitch generation is just getting their foothold. And in 15, 20 years, they're going to be the ones in charge of everyone. So when we talk about all those streamers that are watching video games and talking to each other, they're talking politics. They're talking culture. They're talking the things that really matter. And they're doing it in a really raw, unfiltered way because they have a lot of freedom of speech there that network news and some of the streaming platforms and things like social media do not have yet. At some point, that'll change. Twitch will, like everything else, it'll evolve and it'll have to change a little bit. And more conservative voices will get involved there, just like they did with network news when we saw the rise of Fox News or on massive social media where conservatives have more and more gotten a present. Everything evolves. Everything changes. But keep that in mind that whatever you're frustrated and outraged about media model-wise now, it's probably already obsolete and we don't even realize it like Twitch changing, like TikTok. If you're just on Facebook, you're already considered a fuddy-duddy to those folks. And if you're not on any of it and just watching your cable news, you're even further behind. Time waits for nobody. All things, folks, we need to keep our bearing and understand that there's people way ahead of us on this media stuff. We should do our best to keep up. And if we're just being outraged all the time, we're just playing into the model. It makes us marks. We don't want to be marks. We want to be smart consumers of the news so that we can take the information and make our families, communities, and world a better place. Lots more Hurtel Radio right after this.
Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for staying with us. However you're watching and or listening, we sure appreciate it. Uh, you know, we tagline this program with a basic principle that we want to turn down the news cycle noise and get to the information that actually really matters. And we do that a lot of ways. We highlight certain stories. Uh, we criticize certain people. Uh, we try to cut through what is just outrage and reaction and get to things that actually matter. We talk to a lot of knowledgeable guests uh, because that's another way to get a lot of good information. Guests that you don't see on mainstream media news programming that have the same six or seven people on every panel, no matter what the topic is. If we want cybersecurity information, we talk to a cybersecurity information person. Uh, if we want to talk economy, we try to find somebody that's knowledgeable in the economy. Legal, we have on people that are lawyers or understand the law in specific areas. This is just common sense stuff on how to approach news stories. And one of the biggest ways we need to turn down the noise of the news cycle is being aware of how the news is presented to us. Now, as an editor at Ordinary Times, I'm cognizant of how I title a piece or how we do the little blurbs and the social media promotion of it affects greatly whether people want to read it or not. But that's why for Ordinary Times, most of the time, with a few exceptions, we pull direct quotes directly from the piece and use that for the social media promotion. That way, the piece kind of speaks for itself and it just kind of keeps you out of trouble in a lot of ways. But media is a business, especially print media, especially online print media. So when the Washington Post does something as one of the uh, linchpin news publications in our media discourse and in our cultural and political landscape, uh, we should be aware of how they're doing things. For example, a headline from the Washington Post for December the 11th, vaccine holdouts in the U.S. military approach 40,000, even as Omicron variant fuels calls for boosters. Wow, God, that sounds terrible. How can that be? That's horrible. Well, then you read down a little bit. That's 3% of the military, actually a little less than 3%. And a lot of that number is people that are either waiting for paperwork for medical and or exemption waivers, and a large amount of people who will be leaving the service, leaving the military uh, in due course, so therefore they're not going to be required to get it because it's within a certain time frame of their out-processing from the military. So it's not even a full 3%. But a 3% headline doesn't scream loudly. A 3% headline does not play into the narrative of, oh my gosh, these military people are not complying. Oh my God, what are we going to do? That's noise. It's something to get you to react to it. It's something to play into your priors, whether you're somebody that is very pro-vaccine and wants everybody to have it, or somebody that is skeptical of the vaccine, you're going to react strongly to that headline based on your priors. Now, I don't know that we'd call it unethical, we could call it irresponsible, but let's just be adults and say this is the media environment we live in. This is how media is done. We have to get a headline to get people to read the thing. And people that do media, myself included, sometimes we're guilty of doing that. We'll juice the headline a little bit. We'll juice the lead a little bit, they call it. We'll juice the blurb up a little bit to get you to read the piece. But we need to be cognizant to stop reacting to just blurbs and headlines, especially on social media which lack all forms of context. You got to actually read it. Usually you get three or four paragraphs into a story and you find out that it has the nuance that the headline missed out on. So for in this example, screaming that the military is not complying and there's all these people in the military that aren't going to comply and they're just disobeying orders and it's chaos and everything and it's just turned into the Muppet show. Now that's, that's completely inaccurate. 97% of the military is now vaccinated. Less than 3% is not, and they 
a lot of them were going to have legitimate reasons because they're either waiting for paperwork or they're getting out anyway so they don't have to meet the mandate. So settle down and don't react to silliness like this. It's very frustrating for folks to have to wade through bad information that's being presented this way when if you just presented it accurately, it would tell a better story in the first place. Most of the military is complying to the vaccines. The folks that are not complying, most of them have a good reason or they are seeking a good reason and or it's not going to apply to them because they're getting out anyway. There's nothing wrong with that story. It's a story that fits our time. It's a story that accurately portrays what's happening. And it's a story concurrent because the military is a reflection on wider society. Most people are getting vaccinated. Some people have a problem with it and they're seeking other means of dealing with their situation doesn't mean we need blaring headlines. We don't need more fodder for online culture wars or political wars or whatever you want to call it. So when you see headlines like this, always make sure you read a couple paragraphs in before you just react to it or before you just smash the send button because you're not helping anybody. Shame on the Washington Post who knows exactly what they're doing doing this stuff. 3% doesn't make a great headline. 97% doesn't make a great headline. 40,000 people fed into people's priors. That moves copy but it shouldn't. And it's not all their fault because we shouldn't be falling for it. More Hertel Radio coming up right after this. Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson and I get to talk to a guy who I've kind of come to rely on because he really knows what he's talking about on all this tech stuff that I'm trying to learn as I go on. And you probably are too. Uh, James Jarnowski, how are you, sir? Good to talk to you again. Doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, another young voices com- uh, almost said competitor, but we don't compete. It's friendly competition, but a young voices contributor and uh, doing all kinds of good stuff in tech. And let's just go straight to that. Uh, down in, deep in the heart of Texas, there's been another legal thing apart from the other 25 legal things going on in Texas. Uh, the 230 bill that's been going on down there. Uh, people are kind of getting aware of what 230 is, but they still don't seem to know what it does. So talk about this Texas bill for folks and what's going on with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting case. As you mentioned, Texas seems to be in the news a lot these days with different policies. But with this one, uh, it was House Bill 20. And basically what it did was it created a way for uh, you know Texas to go and be able to sue these, these uh, platforms if they had gone and you know, deplatformed the politicians had some other interesting transparency requirements in there, et cetera. And this is just a, at face value, an unconstitutional piece of legislation that was signed into law throughout the course of the process. Um, You know, you had commentary from legislators and the governor himself even going and indicating that uh, this was in part due to political reasoning for like the censorship of conservatives uh, by social media platforms. So they, they passed this law. Uh, NetChoice and CCIA had sued to go and enjoin it from uh, getting an injunction rather from it taking effect. And just recently this past week, that was successful. So it got a full injunction. Uh, And basically, there's a lot of interesting things that came out of there because part of the reason that they passed this bill um, was that there were uh, they viewed them as uh, more of like a common carrier. And and they thought that, well, they're using algorithms, that that was something that would go and make them more of a a publisher as opposed to a platform. And this distinction is really irrelevant in the scheme of things. And the judge, like I said, in his full injunction, basically acknowledged that uh, this law faces just pure constitutional concerns on the First Amendment. That's what granted the full injunction. uh, And basically that it doesn't matter 
whether or not the, the script, the decision to go and edit content or take it down was done by a human or uh, an algorithm, that editorial discretion is something that is in fact protected by the first amendment and that whether it was done by a machine or a person, that editorial discretion is still in fact editorial discretion. And so nothing surprising there for people that follow this kind of uh, lawsuit closely. Uh, but you know, this is, this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of bill pop up. Uh, while Florida and Texas did go and pass their variants, and both of them do have injunctions, uh, lots of other states have looked to go and pass similar types of legislation. Yeah, and because we get into the the, there's so much terminology here. People talk about it being a free speech issue, a constitutional First Amendment speech issue. Break that down for folks, though, because they start getting into publisher, not a publisher, common carrier, all these sorts of things. Yeah, Those terms are important because you can't just say something's free speech and you can't just say something is protected speech because who you are, who's doing the speaking, where the speaking's coming from, that yeah. goes to liabilities and protections. And then that's where you get into the legal definitions, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So when we're looking at, uh, you know, free speech, uh, that's obviously something that's protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, but notably, that is something that is a constraint on government's ability to go and limit your speech, not private actors' ability to limit your speech. And this is even something that we've seen historically when uh, other lawsuits have been brought against these platforms for one reason or another, right? So um, typically, you'll hear that these, these platforms are the modern public square, uh, basically that they are the common area where everybody comes and talks about the issues of the day. Uh, and we saw this in a case called PragerU v. YouTube, where they argued that uh, they were being censored because, uh, you know, YouTube was essentially uh, putting this tag on them. And that uh, because YouTube is this, uh, you know, modern public square, uh, that they were being censored. And the court, you know, threw them out of that, too, because at the end of the day, these platforms are not. Uh, public squares. Common carrier restrictions are things that we see normally on like our cell phone, uh, you know, companies and utility companies. Um, but it that kind of style of regulation does not even preclude those companies from having First Amendment rights. They would still be able to have that freedom of association. It would be a little bit narrower, but it wouldn't change the fact that they could still do a broad stroke of what they're able to do right now. It would just be underneath the First Amendment. So when we're looking at this issue, it's just it's very interesting because all 230 is at its core is a procedural law to go and assign liability to who is responsible for the speech. Right. So if I go and say something defamatory about you on Twitter, not that I would ever, but if I did uh, and you want to sue somebody, it doesn't make sense to sue Twitter. They were not the, the people who spoke the defamatory commentary about you. I was. So you should be suing me, not Twitter. Uh, and that's all 230 does is make sure that, you know, uh, a website or any website does not get overly litigated by these these claims that, you know, this this website hosted content, even though they were not the speaker of that content or the generator of that content. And the thing that uh, distinguishes these things from the public square is because you don't have to check that little box that everybody checks and nobody reads the fine print on when you go into the public square. Uh, the uh, consent, the content consents when you go onto these websites, that's part of what's going into. And then the other part of this that folks probably are now aware of because Facebook is spending millions and millions of dollars to make sure everybody knows about this, 230 predates most of what we think of as the internet and especially what we think of as social media because it's an older law, but it's still applicable, isn't it? So when we see these ads from Facebook of, 
I'm I'm younger than 230. Shouldn't it be regulated? That should kind of throw up red flags. It's like, well, wait a minute. The law's been good for this long and prelates. It's not just that it's old. It's what's actually in the law that matters here, isn't it? Yeah. So I know that one of the, the popular lines of commentary typically is that, um, you know, we've seen with the Facebook papers and, and Francis Hogan, you know, she's claimed that, you know, Facebook doesn't want 230 changes, which would be uh, quite an interesting use of uh, precious company resources to spend a multi-million dollar ad campaign uh, advocating for 230 reform if you did not, in fact, want 230 reform. I think that, um, you know, there's reasons that those companies want it. Uh, that company wants it and certain others would like to see that happen. Um, but at the end of the day, the law, it's its funny because people do like to say that it's old, 25 years. The internet was not the same as it was back then. All those things are true. <clears throat> but when they did 230, uh, we have the authors of the text, both of them still alive. And they were, it was very forward looking. It wasn't just about the internet of today, but they had a, a vision of the internet of tomorrow that could be broad and, and diverse. And, and this is still very true. I know that we think that there's just this vacuum of having Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube, but the reality is, is that the, the, the broader internet ecosystem is far more diverse and far more competitive than that. And we see that across generations. So whereas like my grandparents would bar barely be having, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, I'm using Facebook, Twitter, Discord, a whole bunch of things to multi-home where I want to go and have my speech and what I'm doing. And then Gen Z makes me feel like a dinosaur because they're they're going and doing all that and then some. Uh, and, and that's really where we can see a lot of variety in what the Internet houses. And it tailors to each individual person, which is what I think is the nice part about it. But none of it is possible if we don't have 230. If it's eliminated or if it's reformed, there are legitimate risks that those companies, in lieu of wanting to go and deal with any kind of litigation, would rather just not host that user-generated content at all, which would be terrible for a lot of people that I think have benefited from having this relatively open internet. If you just look at the number of people that have been able to make a living off of being on YouTube, uh, being able to have their own channels and, and advertise and do like their video game reviews or whatever, um, that wouldn't be possible if we had more stringent liability uh, it would be limited for sure. And you'd have more gatekeepers, which means that I think that we would have a lot less speech overall. And that would be very unfortunate. And since you brought it up, uh, I know one of your areas of interest and it keeps overlapping more and more into the tech stuff and the 230 stuff you talk to, but video games. Um, you talk about the generation gap there a little bit. Uh, the thing is the video game uh, discourse doesn't seem to have anything creatively or new to it. It just seems to be regurgitated because I'm old enough to remember when video games and MTV and rap music was going to ruin the country and looking at how it is now as I enter my 40s, maybe they had a point, but I still think Tipper Gore was wrong and I still think we should have some freedom and I still think it's a parenting thing and not a government thing. But things like this legislation, this affects things like video games because I don't know the people that don't game understand how integrated gaming is now to social media, to the internet. Twitch is one of the fastest growing political realms in the country. I don't think a lot of people that aren't on it even realize that that's where the kind of the bleeding edge on a lot of this stuff is. Talk about that. We also need to have these protections for gamers because they are really becoming their own little cultural and political scene and they're rising and they're getting more and more attention. And they're going to have, I think over the next 10, 15 years, you're going to see a lot of influence coming from those folks. You're absolutely right, Andrew. The, the reality is, is that the video game industry has been <clears throat> one of the fastest growing uh, over the past 10 years plus. And really during the pandemic, that, that accelerated 
by a significant margin because with everybody being locked down and staying home, you had video game console purchases soaring. So a lot of people were really getting into video gaming on consoles that were not previously doing that. And that was actually great to see. But at the end of the day, uh, video games are uh, a conduit for people to express themselves, right? Uh, so going back to this user-generated content concept, if you're a streamer on Twitch, that is something where you're expressing your views. People are constantly putting in comments as you're streaming. And if we're if we're going and doing reforms, that might make it more difficult for people to um, express themselves when when they're either talking or uh, when they're having comments and they're thinking they might want to disable that because, like for example, um, I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah, this was in Australia where the court said, oh you know you would be responsible for the comments on your Facebook pages, uh, and this was to a news publisher. Uh, so how do you think that's going to go and affect uh, free speech on the internet if you your comment section can make you liable uh, for things that are said there? You're probably going to like to turn off those comments. You're probably not going to let people comment on your things. Uh, you're probably going to be more you know guarded in terms of what you're saying um, when you're talking about whatever. Um, so that that's just something I think that's always overlooked. Um, just think about any video game that's major right now. Call of Duty, that has a voice you know, chat function, right? That's that's still user-generated content in its own way. Um, and and again, if you're imposing any kind of liability, it's it's something that I think with that internet function does make it more significantly difficult for people to express themselves digitally. And I think that that would be a shame for the video game industry in particular, because one of the things that video games have done very well, especially with the iteration of the internet, is connecting people from all over the world to be you know, able to understand one another, to have new friendships that wouldn't be possible. Like I wouldn't have half the friends that I have today without having uh, this digital ecosystem that we have, uh, whether through my gaming or through social media, like all of it is so intertwined that if we have any kind of significant changes, it would fundamentally alter the way that uh, we would interact with each other moving forward. And that would be a shame. It would. And uh interconnected people when we're talking about things like uh, information and freedom and diversity, all those things come from interconnecting people. So any way we can do that, we should probably protect it for the sake of liberty and freedom. James Ranowski, you're fantastic, my friend. Let folks know where they can find you and follow you. Yeah, you guys can always follow me on Twitter at jamescz19. I have a personal website at jamestranowski.com where I go and post any of my latest writings and things of that nature. But always look forward to having a conversation with you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. And you can follow him at Twitter, which I do because it shortens down his name and it's just easier for me to type. Uh, but I always appreciate you, my friend. Great information. Thank you for your time. We'll have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell Radio on the Herd Tell podcast that you get if you're subscribed to either on Hertel, on any of the iTunes, Spotify, those sorts of podcasting platforms, iHeartRadio, wherever, or on YouTube. Uh, if you subscribe, you'll get the Hertel podcast, just like you do Hertel Radio every weekday. And the latest one, we have Dennis Sanders on, a colleague of mine at Ordinary Times, ordinary-times.com. He does great writing. He has a piece out on Sears right now that's gotten a lot of play. Uh, the downfall of Sears. Somebody I really respect, uh, somebody I love to talk to because we both come from different backgrounds and different perspectives, but we overlap on a lot of stuff. We disagree on a few things, uh, but a man of great uh, perspective and wisdom who I always listen to. Uh, on the latest Hertel podcast, we talk about identity and what it means to be an American and how that's affecting uh, how we view our country, how we view our media, how we're treating each other and talking to each other. 
I want to play you a segment of that conversation. Really proud of it. Uh, you can hear the entire thing if you're a subscriber, so please do that. It's free. It only costs you a click. Otherwise, please listen to this clip of Dennis Saunders on the Herdtail podcast. We were we were talking about I think we're in a dispensation of time in America that we don't really understand because we've been so focused on post-World War II America for the last 70 years and we've kind of lived on the fumes of that in a lot of ways. And we see the societal unrest because you have minorities and people like that that are 20, 30 years behind that because of the civil rights movement and things. Is a lot of what we're seeing now, and I'm talking real big picture here, not just politics, is a lot of what we're seeing in America now that with social media, with the technology, we're just having a reckoning of what we are as a people And because everybody has a voice and everybody has a face online now and everybody has an ability to amplify and interconnect, that we're just having a long overdue reckoning of, hey, this really is a big, very diverse, very pluralistic society. And and there's a battle royale that's just got to be worked out because people are just for the first time, a lot of them realizing that, hey, there's most of the people in this world and in this country aren't like me at all. And there's millions of them. Is, is that kind of big picture? What's really going on here is just for the first time, people are having to deal with, oh, my little conclave that I grew up with. I'm in a I'm a global citizen now and people are having to try to work that out. And some of them aren't working it out real well. I think it is. I think we have been for a long time and, and the way our whole reality has been shaped up has been the post-war consensus. But, you know, the that consensus actually probably broke down in the eighties. Um, and I think we are living with those fumes, but, every, but and, the eighties were so good See, I, yeah. not to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but that's where no, I no. think that's where the breakdown is because we had the economic resurgence in the eighties. I, I think, and you know, I was a baby. I bar- I remember the late eighties cause I was born in 1980, but, but explain what you mean by that to folks that are maybe younger or just haven't thought of it that way, because people think of the eighties as a really good time in America how can that be where the breakdown occurred? Because things were good in the eighties. We had, you know, pop culture explosion and MTV explain what you mean by that, because it runs counter to what a lot of people think that time was. So explain that a little bit, if you would, please. Sir. Well, yeah. And I think I probably would want to even back up a little bit more is that a lot of people like economists and some politicians and, and um, other experts would say that, the, the post-war consensus that was made after World War II, some of, both economically and, and politically, probably ended around the mid-70s. So between like 1973 to 1975. So when you... And we know what happened me, right around that time. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't really remember that time much because at that time I was... Um, a kid and it was I was born in six, 1969 so I don't remember the, the the consensus and we all know what happened with the 70s economically and all of that um, the 80s I think the reason sometimes we remember it so fondly is that things did get better and I think sometimes even though it got better that doesn't mean that the the consensus hadn't you know that things weren't changing um 
that I think the economy was still kind of changing over. There was still lots of movement of what things were happening. You know, if you lived in Michigan in the 1980s, it was a mess because the auto industry was changing. We were dealing with competition from Japan, but we were also dealing with technology and that you didn't need as many people to make um, cars and all of that. So though there were things that are happening, even though the, I think the, the wider economy was, were, was doing rather well, um, there were parts of it where things were changing. That was also you know, the rise of, of, I think, the tech industry um, becoming uh, greater. So, you know, even in those times of change and, and even in the times when, when a consensus has ended, there are going to be good points. I think that there are going to be times where things go well. Um, and I think that that went into the 90s um, as the economy was still going strong. It was probably even better than it was in the 80s um, where it kind of faltered and where we started to have problems. I would say is probably around the year 2000 politically, because of course that was the year of that election. And then I think that caught up then in 2008 with um, the economic problems and the crash of the market and all of that. Those two things together, I think really just kind of shattered any illusion that things were still going well. I mean, there was already a lot of change. Like I said, there was been a lot of change going in the 80s and 90s, but no one really noticed it as much because the economy was doing so well. When the economy wasn't doing as well, and then also when Washington wasn't doing as well, that's when we started to see things happening. Top that off with the fact that our society was changing. Um, We have, I think, for a long time, especially during the post-war consensus, World War II consensus, to put this probably in the most crudest way possible, we still thought of ourselves as a mostly white nation. That has been changing dramatically um, over the last 40, 50 years. Uh, immigration and, and other things have changed in that we are much more diverse than we ever have been. And that's gonna bring up, bring up a lot of questions and a lot of, of friction. Um, you know, this is why I think why we have this whole thing about the 1619 project when, and all the kind of craziness on that is that we're all trying to figure out, okay, so now we have this country and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean that we are a democracy, but yet we also have this horrible history of slavery or, or how we treated Native Americans? And so we're all trying to deal with all of those issues, some actually most not very well. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, I think you are correct, that we're heading into something new. And I think we're all nervous about it. And to talk about social media for a second, you, um, I don't know if you've read or heard, heard much from Martin Gurry, um, who talks a little bit about you know, how the media was once, that there were kind of gatekeepers um, in the media. And of course, you only had at one time three networks and all of this stuff. And you know, with social media, now anyone can say anything. And 
there are people who don't like that. They wish that we could go back to what it was, but that horse is out of the barn and into the next county and down the valley and into the next state. I mean, it's, it's just gone. There, I don't think we can go back to what we once were. I think we have to figure out what it means to live now in this era of social media. And, and instead of trying to long for some day that it is just not coming back. I think it's something else too, and not to get overly poetic about it. You know, I love my country. I'm, I, I'm very open about, you know, what I think about America. I think, I think my bona fides are a patriot are pretty well established at this point for a lot of reasons. I, I love my country. Part of this that we're talking about is understanding that I love my country. Other people also love our country, but they love it differently. And they express mm -hmm. that love differently. And they got there differently. And almost like a family relationship, not to beat a metaphor to death, but their relationship with the country has different baggage than mine. And mm -hmm. they have different experiences with their country than I do. And it's, and unless you're just going to really do a deep dive into history, which granted guilty because I'm, you know, a history guy at heart. And my dad was a history teacher and made sure I knew all that stuff. Um, a lot of people just don't have, maybe they've never taken the time to understand that, Hey, they can still love this thing that I love. They're just loving it differently and they're loving it from a different point of view. But mm -hmm. that's, that's some, that's not just advanced citizenship, which America demands of us. That's advanced adulting. And yes, I don't think it's something we can really teach. I don't think you can, you certainly can't legislate it. You're not going to make people do it, but I think it's a modeled behavior and a, and an advocacy thing where we just have to keep pushing people to go like, Hey, you, part of one of the great freedoms in America is the freedom to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if their view of our country is different. And it does, even if they're critical of the country, that doesn't, that's something I've had to mature and kind of grow up about is like, just because they're critical of the country and I love my country doesn't mean they don't love their country. A lot of them are critical because they care so dang much about it. It's coming off as anger and it's coming off as frustration and they want things to be better. This isn't just a political thing. This is, this is adulting. This is grown, you know, it's in my family, this is grown folk stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's just not enough people at the grown folk table to talk about this right now because people keep coming with mess and getting sent to the kids table. I don't know what kind of your family you grew up in, but that's how it works. You know, grown folk talk at the grown folk table. That's a privilege, not a right. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that those are the things that we just don't have a good way of dealing with right now of, hey, this is the advanced adult citizenship we need to work on to maintain being a great country. And I think maybe we're in some growing pains or maybe even maybe birthing pains because we're still a young country. Maybe this is just the birthing pains of making a, a great society that's going to last more than two or 300 years. If you're going to have that thousand year thing that a lot of countries and societies and cultures are, this is the process. Is that is that maybe part of it? Is like we just I don't have a maturity to it? I think it is there. I'm reminded, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's a, a quote by James Baldwin that says, you know, I love my country and I love it, I love it enough that I'm, I'm willing to criticize it. And I think for myself being African-American, and, and I think that this is something that I've, I've realized, I think for most African-Americans is that we have, a, have to live with it in a way with a duality. And the duality is, is that we, love our country. I mean, there's a reason that Martin Luther King spoke 
and used the words of the founding fathers and the, and the Declaration of Independence because this is who we are. We are Americans. That's why we're fighting for, all, for civil rights. But you also know the past. I, I mean, I know my father growing up in Jim Crow, Louisiana. I know that I have, you know, my ancestors were slaves. So you know that history and you know how we have been treated in the past. And, and, you know, to be honest, we're still kind of dealing with some of those issues today, even though I think it's, it's much better um, than what it was. And I think that for people, especially I think for, for white Americans and for, there has been a certain view of America that has almost been perfect, um, that we haven't had any real big issues and, and issues have all been solved. And, and I think that's kind of one of, the, one of the things that are getting into the whole like critical race theory stuff. Um, and I say this knowing that there are things you can be critical about critical race theory, but I think a lot of it is this fear of hearing about things about America that aren't always so great, that we, are, we weren't always the guys with the white hats. Um, and so there's this fear that if I have to see something critical about America, then that means I hate America. And then that is not the case. Um, this is a big, diverse, and I will also say complex country. But I think for all of it, I think we're a good country. But good does not mean perfect. Good just means good. And I think, you know, part of that maturity will come from being willing to kind of understand our past, um, understanding some of the, the parts of our present that need to be corrected, um, and yet understanding that there are still things that are good about this country. Um, now, I, I probably should add on the other side of that, because there are people, I've been kind of basically talking from the right, from the left of saying there, you can have people doing things that are bad and they can still also be good people. Um, that happens too. And we have to, I think, admit there are also good things about this country. Um, personally, I think, you know, the fact that this country barely 50 years after the civil rights movement was able to elect a black man to become president twice says something about us. Um, I think that that's something that we need to also take to heart as well. And so I think it, it, there's a kind of maturity that has to come from, I think, both sides of the aisle of, of being willing to deal with the good and the bad and not kind of have this whatever kind of avatarish view of America. My thanks to Dennis Saunders for being on the Hertel podcast. You can hear the entire podcast. It's about an hour long, real deep, in-depth discussion. We talk about everything from how people deal with loneliness and friendship, and that affects their politics, to the post-World War II consensus that's kind of ending and going into this brave new era. Uh, a lot of good, heavy topics in there discussed in a calm way, uh, in a reasonable way, a lot of wisdom, a lot of perspective, and none of the noise, none of the caterwauling, which is what we always try to do here on Hertel. Check that out with our friend Dennis Sanders. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Men. That's men with two N's like Minnesota. 
Great guy, great writer. Follow him. We'll be back with more Herd Tell right after this. That's all for this edition of Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us today. However you're watching and or listening, we sure appreciate it. Leave a rating, a comment. If the platform you're watching us on gives you an example of doing that. Uh, also, if you really want to do us a solid, share us on your social media. Let people know where they can find us. It only costs you a click, but it lets folks know that what we're doing is important. We never want to waste your time. You're giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, uh, trying to get a little bit of information. We want to always honor that with our guests with the way I do things and with the way we present the program. So if you could share it with folks, we'd sure appreciate it. As long as you keep listening, we're going to keep doing it. Uh, so until we talk to you next time, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well, we hope you're well fed and we'll talk to y'all real soon. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.